0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash AFX. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Angela Fitch a board certified internist, pediatrician, and obesity medicine expert. I'm the chief medical officer of KnownWell and faculty at Harvard Medical School. It's not news that obesity contributes to cardiovascular risk. In fact, by the time a patient with obesity presents to our clinic, many have already developed many of the complications of obesity, hypertension, type two diabetes, dyslipidemia, and even cardiovascular disease. In the next five minutes or so, we'll explore how obesity contributes to this risk. Here you see some of the complications of obesity, which are quite diverse across the whole human body. But in particular here, we highlight obesity in the heart. You can see here that there's an increased risk of stroke, dyslipidemia, hypertension, as we mentioned, cardiovascular disease, and also high output heart failure. We will also mention too that Atrial fibrillation or rhythm disturbances such as atrial fibrillation can be increased in people with obesity as well, as well as CKD, kidney disease, and type 2 diabetes. So there is a multitude of complications of obesity. Obesity contributes to cardiovascular risk regardless of the fact of if comorbidities exist already. There has been sort of a myth in that people who have obesity but are metabolically healthy don't have any signs of insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, that their cardiovascular risk is actually not there, that their cardiovascular risk is lower. But here you can see that there's a 49% increased risk of cardiovascular disease in people that are otherwise metabolically healthy who have obesity. So obesity in and of itself leads to some of these diseases, especially as we mentioned in the heart failure category. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, that is. Cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, and obesity increases loss of life years. Here you can see anywhere from a loss of of eight to 10 years to one to two years, depending on age and gender. But again, the idea that obesity takes years off our life means that it's a very serious problem that we should treat. This is something that we should treat first in a lot of our diseases, but we do not. We tend to treat it last. And what we're trying to focus on here is treating the obesity first to get to the root of the cause of some of our other complications. The fact of the matter is obesity is an increase in adipose tissue. Our adiposity is what makes us sick, not our weight, not our BMI, but the amount of adipose tissue we have because adipose tissue itself creates an inflammatory environment that increases inflammatory cytokines that have effects on the heart, our cardiovascular system, And even in in people um, as young as teenagers, these disorders of our cardiovascular system have been shown to be the effects of this inflammation on our blood vessels, on our liver, on our heart and kidneys. The inflammation is what leads to this abnormal effects of obesity. In summary, obesity may not seem the most pressing issue for patients with cardiovascular disease, but if we can address obesity, Either when patients have disease or even before they have disease, we may be able to improve outcomes for these patients. We may be able to even prevent cardiovascular disease in some patients if we treat their obesity soon enough. Stay tuned for the next episode as Dr. Ben Sirica reviews strategies for identifying and addressing obesity-related concerns.
0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on obesity. This activity comprises six streaming episodes featuring Professor Angela Fitch and Professor Benjamin Sirica. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
2: Hi, everybody. My name's Ben Sirica. I'm a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Now, recognizing obesity may seem obvious. I mean, one can't go through one of our clinics without seeing how much obesity there is in our patients. And it's easy to see when we think it's starting to impact people's lives, especially when we see it around the waist. But the question now in 2023 is what can we do about this? And I'll give you a few perspectives from my standpoint as a cardiologist and also somebody who's done a lot of work in obesity and cardiometabolic disease. But this has become, I think, one of the most important aspects in terms of managing cardiovascular risk. But the first part really is how we recognize and stratify patients who are obese. Now, weight and height are the first place to start, and everybody should have a weight and a height measured and and recorded in the medical records. What is often not done, but which offers a lot of Uh, insight into somebody's cardiometabolic health is waist circumference. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But from the weight and the height, we can calculate the BMI. And the BMI is one of the most accepted measures of somebody's obesity status. And as you all know, there are certain criteria. If you're less than 18 and a half, it's underweight. Normal is 18 and a half to just less than 25. 25 to 30 is overweight. 30 to 35 is uh, class 1 obesity, and over 35 is class 2 obesity. But there is a lot of variation even amongst patients who have the same BMI. And we often talk about whether there's central adiposity or peripheral adiposity. And that's important because whether the fat or adiposity is in the gut, is worse than if it's out in the periphery, but we don't have good measures of this. You can do this with fancy scans that sometimes get done, but not often. And by itself, just saying somebody's weight often doesn't give us the full picture of how to best identify and risk stratify them. Now, what is clear is that all of the professional guidelines are very strong about being able to identify and assess obesity in all our patients. Just like we check blood pressure, just like we check cholesterol, and just like we check sugar levels, we should be able to uh, categorize every one of our patients according to whether they have obesity or are overweight, and then together with other risk factors be able to stratify them in terms of what are their risk of obesity-related complications. And so this is something I think in our practices we get a bit numb to just because so many of our patients are struggling with their weight and we often have little to offer to our patients. But it's a question of how would we differently identify and then diagnose uh, uh, obesity in our practice. And often just identifying it is the first step. People get very used to their weight. Um, sometimes if the entire community is, is, is overweight or obese, it doesn't seem like a problem. And so I think it's important for us to, uh, to be able to uh, adequately describe what are the, the risks associated with obesity, and especially associated with central obesity or central adiposity. And then thinking about how now with new treatment options and existing treatment options, we can pivot that conversation on how obesity can be uh, managed more effectively. Because if we can manage patients' obesity, especially with newer agents, we can uh, treat obesity as it should be treated as a disease state for which we can modify risk. And so, in these next episodes, and in particular in the next episode, I'll review some of the strategies for identifying and addressing obesity related concerns.
0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on obesity. This activity comprises six streaming episodes featuring Professor Angela Fitch and Professor Benjamin Sirica. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
2: Hi, everyone. As we all know too well, most patients with obesity will not be able to achieve clinically meaningful weight loss, especially for a sustained period, with lifestyle and diet modifications alone. It's unfortunate fact that we often, uh, both in ourselves and our patients, have real hard time with diet and lifestyle uh, of maintaining a, a healthy weight for our entire life. And there are a lot of reasons for that that we won't get into, but it's just important to recognize that even with some of the best lifestyle and diet interventions, people often return to their baseline after nine to 12 months of initial success. So what is it that we can do in terms of assisting our patients to lose weight? The first is when should we engage somebody uh, for obesity management? And that's honestly a more of a public health question and how we address it starting in infancy and even pregnancy and working our way up through adolescence than adults. But it, it's one of the areas that I think that we have to address early on in patients because um, we often will see younger obese and overweight patients and what we need to do is first identify those who may be at risk at developing obesity-related complications. But in those patients who are overweight or obese and have other cardiovascular risk factors, we really do have to double down on our treatment of those risk factors, whether they be high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, or the risk of type 2 diabetes, so prediabetes or impaired fasting glucose. And those should be done early on and then we have to start to identify what are the different lifestyle and diet therapies that we can work with patients and one of the things i often tell patients is we're not looking for the quick fix we have to make changes to diet and lifestyle that are going to last for a lifetime and so whatever changes we make we have to make ones that are sustainable and don't feel like we're really putting too much pressure on the, the patient to get uh, achieve weight loss within just a couple months there are Important conversations that have to happen early in those patients who are obese with a lot of comorbidities about bariatric surgery, because I think for those patients it can be a life altering type of procedure, not only for their cardiovascular health, but their non cardiovascular health. Now, everybody recommends uh, diet and lifestyle in the first stage, but you know, even with the best diet and lifestyle education, and implementation, we haven't seen that manifest itself into cardiovascular outcomes. And there was a study that was done by the N.A.H. called the Look Ahead Study that took patients and, and randomized people to standard of care or intensive behavioral lifestyle intervention. And they were able to demonstrate some pretty good weight loss, especially over the first six to nine months. But when they looked at cardiovascular outcomes, there was no difference over years of follow-up. And it begs the question, is it because that it didn't help it because the intervention wasn't correct? Or was the intervention not, uh, not powerful enough to reduce weight and cause sustained weight loss to then manifest into cardiovascular benefit? Now, what we do know is that currently available weight loss agents um, uh, over the past couple decades have been very hard to manage because they either don't sustain very long weight loss or they've had side effects. Some of them having side effects that are so bad that they've had to been pulled from the market. And so it's left this therapeutic gap where patients either have minimally effective weight loss drugs with side effects or they have to go to bariatric surgery. The great and large group in the middle hasn't been able to find good therapies. What we've seen now over the past couple years is a new class of weight loss agents that not only have been able to demonstrate weight loss that is approaching bariatric surgery level weight loss, but also have demonstrated cardiovascular benefit. And in this, I'm talking about the GLP-1 receptor agonist, in particular semaglutide, uh, at the, um, which in patients with diabetes has demonstrated cardiovascular risk reduction. And together with terzepatide, a dual incretin agonist, we're seeing weight losses that are well over 10% uh, of body weight, uh, which is much, much more than previous agents, and as I said, is a close uh, approaching bariatric surgery. So I think we have to reconsider how we're treating obesity, where honestly, over the past decade, it seemed almost a Sisyphean task Uh, to continue to counsel patients and it's been very frustrating that even when patients do achieve weight loss they've been unable to maintain that. But I think with the newest therapies that have been available we can really change uh, change the paradigm on weight loss and in the next episode Dr. Fitch will review the latest data on the GLP-1 receptor agonist.
0: Welcome to this peer voice activity on obesity. This activity comprises six streaming episodes featuring Professor Angela Fitch and Professor Benjamin Sirica. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
1: Hello, everyone. In this episode, we'll look at the exciting clinical evidence for managing cardiovascular disease risk in patients with obesity. We have strong evidence for the role of GLP-1 receptor agonists in achieving clinically relevant weight loss, as well as reducing cardiovascular risk in patients with type 2 diabetes. Ongoing clinical trials are exploring the impact of weight loss on cardiovascular outcomes in patients with obesity alone. Pharmacotherapy is a tool for obesity treatment. At the base of our treatment, of all patients with obesity, is lifestyle modification. This is especially true of people that have a a BMI in the lower categories. So our goals here are to increase the number of people that are responding to lifestyle modification and increase the magnitude of the response and increase the duration of the response when we add on pharmacotherapy as a tool. This is even true of surgery at the top of the pyramid here. Surgery is indicated for people with a BMI greater than 35 who have a comorbidity that we have listed earlier in one of our earlier episodes. Pharmacotherapy is indicated with a BMI greater than 27 with a comorbidity or a BMI greater than 30. And again, right now we're using BMI-based categories, but ultimately this is about the adiposity that a patient has, and in the future, it is likely that BMI will become less of a factor as we look at individual patient risk and shared decision-making in the process of treatment. But again, pharmacotherapy in whatever form we choose is an adjunct to a base of working on lifestyle modifications alone. The issue is that lifestyle modification in and of itself tends to produce very little weight loss. And we'll see here as we look at some of the evidence to that effect. What is clinically meaningful weight loss? We have to think about this as we also talk with patients for people with obesity any weight loss is good so even in the 2 to 5% weight loss category we see some clinically relevant benefits such as improvement in glycemia especially in people with type 2 diabetes improvement in triglycerides we see a drop in blood pressure in a decrease in hepatic steatosis and then we also see other quality of life factors you know improvement of functioning even at the 5 to lower weight loss effects but as we get up into the higher weight loss, 10 and 15%, that's where we get real disease modification, such as resolution of NASH, resolution of sleep apnea, and especially at the higher weight losses, we're looking at that cardiovascular disease reduction. So we have to get greater than 15% weight loss for many patients to see a remission of a lot of these other diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, or a reduction in cardiovascular disease risk. So really our bar has changed recently into this greater than 10 to 15% weight loss category, which is a larger category than what lifestyle alone can produce. Typically with our lifestyle modification factors, our average weight losses are in the three to 5% range, which again is great for everybody. But especially as we get into these higher weight losses is where we're really going to see some reduction in risk and remission of the complications of obesity. Here we have our step one trial which is looking at semaglutide in people with obesity. These are people without diabetes, so these are people with just obesity. The idea is if I can stay on treatment and I can tolerate this medication and I can get access to it, what are my results gonna be? And you can see here that almost 35% of the semaglutide treatment group got greater than 20% weight loss. This is a huge difference between the 2% of people that got greater than 20% weight loss with placebo. So you can see how hard it is. And even in the placebo group, people were receiving lifestyle education. They were receiving lifestyle education across the board in this study. And so with that lifestyle, you can see where only 2% of people are able to get that 20% weight loss. And that's where this is really changing the outcomes of and modifying these diseases. Even at the 10% weight loss, you can see that 75%, close to 75% of people were able to get that 10% weight loss versus only 12% of people in the lifestyle of the placebo group. So a big difference, and that's the advantage of adding on medication to our current treatment strategies. These drugs are relatively well tolerated by most people. Side effects such as nausea, diarrhea, constipation, gastrointestinal side effects tend to be the biggest issue Some of the the major side effects that that are more uh, concerning, such as pancreatitis or psychiatric disturbances, again, these are something that are there but are not at a great enough increase that we worry about them in the sense of the risk of not treating the obesity is far greater than any of those side effects that you see there. Here we have our surmount trial. This is data on weight loss with trizepatide versus placebo. And again, you can see here with this newer agent, terzepatide is a new GLP-1 receptor agonist and a GIP agonist as well. This is a dual agonist acting on both GIP and GLP-1 receptors. And you can see here at the highest dose that there is an average or a, um, around about 20% weight loss, so more people are able to get in to the 20% weight loss category with the average being in that realm. The surmount trial also shows us the safety profile here of trisepatide, which is very similar to semaglutide uh, in that a lot of the common disorders are things that are gastrointestinally related, which is very manageable for patients, especially if they're aware that that's going to be the, the case beforehand. The SELECT trial is ongoing, which is looking at cardiovascular risk, risk reduction in obesity that don't have diabetes and what are their outcomes as far as reduction in cardiovascular risk. So we know from earlier trials that the risk of a major adverse cardiovascular event is reduced with GLP-1 therapy in people with type 2 diabetes. So we have the data on people with type 2 diabetes that shows a reduction here as you can see from the the plot that there is an advantage or a reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events for people with diabetes who are taking semaglutide. So the SELECT trial is going to show us hopefully similar benefits in people without type 2 diabetes. This cardiovascular benefit was consistent across baseline risk. In summary, therapy with GLP-1 receptor agonists can help patients achieve clinically meaningful weight loss and reduce cardiovascular risk in patients with type 2 diabetes. We're hopeful that ongoing studies that are exploring whether therapy with GLP-1 receptor agonists can reduce cardiovascular risk in patients with obesity alone, and that's coming hopefully soon, that data. In the next episode, we'll discuss best practices for GLP-1 receptor therapy in further detail.
0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on obesity. This activity comprises six streaming episodes featuring Professor Angela Fitch and Professor Benjamin Sirica. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five. Our discussion for this episode will focus on what cardiologists need to know about GLP 1 receptor agonists. We'll talk about keys in the initiation, titration, and management of patients who are taking GLP-1 receptor agonists for obesity treatment, tips for how to anticipate or prevent common adverse effects, and considerations related to adjustments of concomitant medications, especially in patients taking other medications for glycemic control who have diabetes. Here we have a list of the dosing for long-acting GLP-1 receptor agonists. These are mostly GLP-1 receptor agonists used for the treatment of diabetes, and you can see on the right-hand side the reduction in A1C expected in patients with diabetes. I'll also note that liraglutide and semaglutide by injection are also used for obesity treatment. Here you will note that all of these drugs require a slow titration over time, typically each month, but if there's any side effects, you can also prolong that duration so that patients can tolerate the medication easier. Here you have the reasons for discontinuation of GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy, at least in people with diabetes. So again, a lot of this data comes from people who are taking these medications for diabetes, but you can see the biggest reason for discontinuating the medication is the GI side effects, the idea that these medications made me feel sick or made me throw up. So those things can be moderated, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. You also see that the idea of having an injection, that the injection was too painful, or the fact that the injection was just an injection in and of itself, was not a big reason for people to to discontinue them. So we shouldn't be afraid of these medications because they are a weekly injection, especially because it's only once a week. So patients are much more able to want to take them today than they were in the past. Here are some general strategies for success. The key is to titrate medication slowly, if needed, if the person is having side effects. If they're not having any side effects, as we discussed, such as constipation, diarrhea, nausea, you can go up on the dose each month to get to the maximum dose that you're using for treatment. Make sure that you have the patient selected day and time for the weekly injections, preferably associated with another weekly activity to improve adherence such as maybe Monday because it's the first day of the week, or maybe Saturday because, you know, they do something on Saturday also with their family and that might remind them to take the medication. Or you can have them put a reminder on their calendar because taking a weekly medication can sometimes be harder for people than taking a daily medication as they might forget. If they forget to take these medications and go too long without it, restarting them at the current dose can cause more side effects so it is important to really be a stickler about that adherence part. Advise patients to have small meals, focused on healthy fruits and vegetables, and to eat slowly. These medications reduce gastric emptying. And so if you eat too quickly, you can feel fuller too fast and then feel overfull after the meal. So that's why we also talk to patients about practicing mindfulness around their hunger and satiety so they can understand and really recognize when they're full sooner and stop earlier so they don't get overfull and experience side effects such as nausea and reflux. Ask the patient also to incorporate daily activity and exercise in their day, because this also helps with blood sugar control if they have diabetes, but also helps improve the obesity and weight loss effects of the medication. Constipation is common. This may be because people aren't just eating as much fiber as they used to in their diet because they're not consuming as much volume. So patients may need a supplemental dietary fiber in order to prevent the constipation because certainly preventing it is better than trying to treat it after it's already occurred. GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy may lower blood pressure directly and also blood pressure can come down from weight loss. So antihypertensive medication may need to be reduced in order to avoid hypotension. GLP-1 receptor therapy has been associated with a slight increase in heart rate but this has not been documented significantly in clinical trials. But it's important to sort of differentiate that there are other reasons that they might be having tachycardia, especially if they're not eating or drinking enough and staying hydrated. When your appetite's reduced, you also tend to not drink as much. And when you don't drink as as much fluid, you can become dehydrated, which also can lead to tachycardia and dizziness. The risk of gallstones is generally higher in those patients with type two diabetes and obesity but it is also greater in people who are losing weight. So it's important to talk about patients with that so that they can identify gallstone symptoms early and have a workup for that as indicated. There is a risk of hypoglycemia with GLP-1s, but it is low for most patients. Even with patients with no diabetes and obesity, we do not see hypoglycemia very frequently. But we do see it in people who are on insulin or sulfonylureas for type 2 diabetes concomitantly, and they may need a dose adjustment. GLP-1 receptor therapy is contraindicated in those with a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer. It's important to note that this is only medullary thyroid cancer, which is a very rare cancer of the thyroid. Other thyroid cancers, it is not a concern, nor are thyroid nodules themselves. They should just be worked up and followed as directed, but that's not a contraindication for GLP-1 receptor therapy. In summary, many patients will experience nausea. Some will have vomiting, diarrhea or constipation when they first start on GLP-1 receptor therapy. It's important to manage that with them so that they can stay on therapy. These effects often improve over the first few months and they can be mitigated by slow titration or with other pharmaceutical intervention. These therapies are not magic bullets. Patients need to adjust their food intake and increase their physical activity to get the maximum results from any pharmacotherapy that we're adding for obesity treatment. This combination of lifestyle combined with pharmacotherapy, like other diseases we have that have a lifestyle component, it's important to do both. Stay tuned for the final episode as my colleague, Dr. Ben Sirica, discusses when to refer patients for weight management.
0: Welcome to this peer Voice activity on obesity. This activity comprises six streaming episodes featuring Professor Angela Fitch and Professor Benjamin Sirica. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
2: Hello, everybody. By now, I hope you're experiencing a renewed sense of hope for helping our patients with obesity achieve clinically meaningful weight loss. You may be feeling more confident about identifying patients who would benefit from weight loss and initiating treatment plans for patients so they can achieve their goals. But we may not be able to help every patient this way. And it's important therefore to understand who are the patients that will benefit from more intense therapy. So in our final episode, we'll talk about when to refer patients to a weight management clinic. And I think there are a couple areas where this is important. I think one of the most important is when we want or think a patient will benefit from bariatric surgery. Often bariatric surgery uh, is a process where somebody has to enter a program, be in it for several months, and then they'll undergo bariatric surgery. And then obviously have a long follow-up with them to make sure that they uh, are able to recover and achieve the sustained weight loss. And I tend to uh, be very early in terms of my referrals to bariatric surgery for young patients um, who have already manifest uh, uh, risk factors or other obesity-related complications just because I know that lifestyle and diet in particular, but even with medicines, may not be able to achieve the type of weight loss that really will profoundly affect their longevity and their quality of life. Um, And so I'll I'll refer them on the earlier stage. For other patients, many will try weight loss with diet and lifestyle. Um, I have a few patients who have done amazing over many years and really sustained that, and for them, they just need the constant encouragement uh, and support, but they are the exception. For the other patients, uh, often the story is more I've tried it, I lost, you know, 10% and then I gained, gained it back within three months. And those are the ones who I think that uh, will benefit from perhaps more intensive lifestyle management of a weight loss referral, but also pharmacotherapy. And I think the, um, for those patients who have, who have tried hard and not succeeded, they may find that pharmacotherapy really can sort of change the, the set point on their relationship with food and allow them to achieve their weight loss goals. The other group that I think we'll have to learn about uh, is that patients with established cardiovascular disease who are obese. Um, Because there are ongoing studies right now that are evaluating some of these newer agents in patients who are obese without diabetes who have established cardiovascular disease. And if those studies do demonstrate cardiovascular benefit, then I think it will add yet another therapy that we can offer for patients with established cardiovascular disease that directly is related to to helping them lose a substantial number of weight, improve their cardiovascular risk factors, and hopefully improve their longevity. And so I think we, as we've stated, we're, we're really at a new era in terms of weight management, where we have effective therapies that in combination with lifestyle interventions really are changing the narrative of how we manage obesity. Um, I think because of that, we need to lower the bar a little bit in who we think about pharmacotherapy, Uh, not only in terms of younger patients who may have a lifelong of uh, obesity-related complications that we want to minimize, but on the other end, those patients who have more established cardiovascular disease and more comorbidities in whom we know obesity is a critical factor in their uh, subsequent risk, but in whom we have not had therapy, but now have therapy that can help them lose weight. And that will hopefully not only improve their risk factors, but also their quality of life. And when we can uh, help patients achieve those types of goals, uh, hopefully there'll be a positive reinforcement. Will they continue to improve, be able to do more activities Improve other factors of their cardiovascular risk. So, I want to thank you for your attention and I hope uh, these sessions have helped uh, uh, inform you on where we are in terms of treating obesity in 2023.
0: This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.